To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always and every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. This morning we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Philippians that's going to take us into early October. And we actually, if you think about it, we actually owe a lot to who we are. The fact that we exist as a church in some ways is an extension of what happened at the church in Philippi. Because when Paul went there to preach the gospel, it was the first time that the gospel arrived on European soil. But Paul never actually intended to go to Philippi. He actually wanted to go in the opposite direction on his missionary journeys. The book of Acts tells us he was planning on going to Asia to preach the gospel, but the Spirit forbid him from doing so. So then he changed direction and tried to go to Bithynia, and then the Spirit changed direction and said, you can't go there either. And so finally, after a vision, Paul realizes that he is called to go to preach the gospel in Philippi. And Philippi became what I think is probably, of all the churches he'd been, the one that was most precious to him. He'll say at the end of the letter that it is his crowning jewel of his ministry. Because when he arrives in Philippi, God was waiting for him. He meets Lydia by the river as him and Silas are praying, and she becomes converted, a wealthy woman that becomes a prominent figure in the early church. And then he comes across a uh, demon-possessed girl, he casts a demon out of her. She was used as a slave to tell fortunes. And whenever he exercises the demon, she too is converted. But that got Paul and Silas thrown into prison by the slave owners. And so everything was still okay, though, because as Paul and Silas were in jail, they start singing praises late one night. And then an earthquake happens. Their chains fall off. The prison cell doors open. And they are freed. And then the Philippian jailer is converted by Paul's willingness to stay and preach the gospel to him instead of running. And so these, with these three conversions, the church at Philippi was started, and it was started with a bang. That's quite the start. I'm actually quite jealous. That would make for an amazing story to tell at their new members class. Ours was not quite that amazing. It's like, yeah, we, we crossed the lake in 2000, and then after that, who doesn't want that story? It's a story of how God moved in their church. 
And here you are years later as we read this letter, and Paul is in prison in Rome. He's nearing the end of his life, and he writes this letter to the Philippians. But this isn't the only letter that Paul writes. He also writes Ephesians, he writes Colossians, and he writes Philemon from this same prison cell. And it's not as the details like that. It's the details behind the text that always make my mind begin to turn and to think and ask questions. And knowing that makes me ask the question, you know, why prison? Why is it that some of Paul's most influential letters he wrote while he was in chains? In 2007, I visited a man uh, at Algoa State Prison in Jefferson City, Missouri. And uh, it was a weird set of circumstances that led me there, but there I was, sitting in an empty cafeteria with a friend of mine waiting to meet a man named Josh. Josh had already up to that point served 14 years of a life sentence for capital murder. But Josh was innocent. In fact, he would later go on and be exonerated of all charges because he was falsely framed and he had 14 alibis saying of his whereabouts on the night of the murder that were all dismissed. And he spent 14 years from the age of 19 on in prison, robbed of over half his life. But it was in prison that Josh met Jesus and became a Christian. And when I met Josh, he was, he was a surprise because he had this sense of confidence and purpose in God's plan for him that I did not expect to see. He wasn't sitting there wallowing in self-pity, saying, woe is me. In fact, his faith was strong, and he had a peace that God was at work in his life, and he spoke with such purpose. To the point that whenever I left, I couldn't help but think, goodness, why don't I feel those things? I didn't expect to go to prison and meet a man that was actually freer than I was. Josh had been given a new identity. And what we see with Josh is the same thing I think we see with Paul in Philippians. He's confident. He's joyful. He has purpose. Prison hadn't put a dent in any of those things. He knows exactly what God has called him to. And perhaps that's why God orchestrated it to where you know, Paul wrote his, some of his most influential letters while he was in prison to be a constant reminder to the church throughout history that this faith that we hold really does give you an identity that transcends time, place, situation, and circumstance. An identity that remains unshaken in the face of trial and difficulty. And we can either live out of that identity and know that kind of purpose and confidence, or we can live out of another identity. One of my professors in seminary would always say this. He'd say, look, if I, have to, if I had to summarize all of Paul's writing in the New Testament with one question, it would be this. Christian, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? Knowing your identity is very important to Paul. And we see that in all of his letters, and we certainly see it in the letter to the Philippians. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, Paul starts off his letter to the Philippians using three words that for him are at the very core of understanding our identity as believers. Those three words are saints, grace, and peace. That's why Paul starts all of his letters this way. Because who we are and what we have in Christ, knowing our identity as a people, is of utmost importance to him. And these three words just by themselves carry a tremendous amount of weight. Each of these words by themselves calls to question the way that we live and how we see ourselves. Each of these words is a sermon in and of itself. So do you see yourself and consider yourself a saint? One who has been called and set apart as God's precious possession for his purposes and his purposes alone. Where you no longer are a citizen of this world, you now are a citizen of another world that is coming into this one. Or do you feel that the life that God calls you to doesn't offer any joy or life? Do you consider yourself someone who's under grace, knowing that you were chosen, that God initiated something in you because of his abundant, unmerited favor towards you? Or are you always caught up in being worried about your performance, constantly pursuing the favor of others? Are you someone who recognizes that you have peace with God? Your warfare has ended. It's over. Or do you find yourself living a life that's filled and marked by anxiety, turmoil, chaos, panic, always feeling like God's mad at you, disappointed in you? Each of these words say to you, Christian, don't you know who you are? You are a saint. You are under grace. You have peace. Because each of these three words is more than just, you know, a nice Christian greeting and a part of the letter that we can all just skip over and talk about the real heavy stuff. Each of these words carries weight because our experience of new life in Christ is based on how seriously we take words like this and how much they actually shape our mindset and our life together. So this morning we have the question of identity. As we start this series, I just want us to consider the one question this morning, which is this. What does a church look like that takes its Christian identity seriously? What does a church look like when these aren't just words that are a part of Christian lingo, but they actually shape who we are? We see two things, and the first thing that we see is that a church that takes its Christian identity seriously is one that is committed to the mission of God. In verse 3, Paul uses very strong language to talk about how thankful he is, how he thanks God for the Philippian church, and how much they have brought him joy. Why? Because of their partnership with him. Now that that word partnership is a really sterile translation because it sounds like it's a business deal. It's actually the word koinonia, which means that Paul is thanking them for their deep, unified communion with him in his ministry. And the way that they've expressed that commitment to him, that koinonia, that fellowship, is their support from beginning to end of Paul. When Paul was in Thessalonica, the Philippian church sent him aid when he didn't even ask for it. And currently, while Paul is in prison, they were providing for him while he's in chains. Because in the ancient world, a prisoner had to rely upon friends and family to give them food and support. And so, Philippians went above and beyond in supporting Paul while he's in prison. 
And to give an idea of how much they went above and beyond, the distance between Rome and Philippi is an eight-month journey. They were incredibly committed to Paul and his ministry. And it wasn't just while he was in prison. They'd supported him from the very beginning of their church. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about the Philippians when he says this. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave beyond their means, and not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. There are people that know who they are. They know who they belong to. And so here's Paul, and what I think he probably knows is most likely going to be his last letter to them. Deeply thankful for their years of sacrificial giving to support him in the advancement and defense of the gospel. Because Paul knows that they actually gave up a lot more than money. Their giving was actually an expression of how they laid aside their old identity and they embraced a new one. Because in Roman culture, it was common to give gifts. But the reason you gave gifts was to gain honor and prestige which meant that you'd only give gifts to someone who's higher up the food chain than you are in order to gain their favor. You scratch their back in hopes that they'll eventually scratch your back and raise you to prominence. So giving was how you place someone in your debt to climb up the social ladder in a highly competitive Roman culture. Giving was how you used people for your own ends. It wasn't about generosity. So... If you wanted to move up the social ladder and be great in Roman society, it didn't make any sense for the Philippians to give so abundantly to someone like Paul who could never, ever pay them back. Or someone who offered them zero opportunity for advancement. Secondly, it was shameful to be associated with someone who's in prison. And so repeatedly, we see them give up power, influence, opportunities for status, Opportunities to make their life more comfortable. Why? It's because they're living out of a completely different identity than the one that Roman culture offered to them. They knew they belonged to the Lord. And their generosity displayed an identity that transcended time, place, situation, and circumstance. Do we know who we are called to be? Do we know who we are? Do we belong to the Lord? This is why missions is at the core of who we are at Rockwall Press, and hopefully always will be. Because the degree that we give to the mission of God speaks to the identity that we as a church choose to live by. Are we really saints that feel and know that we are called out of this world to operate as citizens of another world? Are we people of grace that believe that we can give abundantly because we have been given all things? Are we people of peace that want to extend reconciliation with God, whether it's in the deep forest or whether it's to a single mother at the Pregnancy Resource Center? I think, you know, the more I've put an ear to the ground these last few weeks, we're actually hungry for this. I think we're a church that's hungry for the mission of God and ready for that next step. We had the informational meeting this morning for the Pregnancy Resource Center and 22 people showed up. We ran out of chairs, standing room only. Might that always be true of us? But we can't be the church that says we've done that in the past and now we're fine. 
We've done enough to secure who we are. Instead, might we always be known as a church that's committed to the mission of God because we know who we are. We know who we belong to. The second thing that we see is a church that takes its Christian identity as one that sees Christ at work among them. Verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a famous verse, no doubt, because it speaks to the commitment of Christ to finish what he starts. We remember this verse in difficult times. But one thing that we need to recognize is that this verse is often interpreted to be about the individual. And it's certainly true that Christ is going to complete the work that he started in you personally. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about them corporately as a church. And this is why we need somebody to come out with the TSV version of the Bible, the Texas Standard Version. Because what Paul really says is this, he who started a good work in y'all. He who started a good work in all of you together. And so what does he want the Philippians to hear? When they hear that, he wants them to see what they're a part of. He wants them to recognize and say, yes, he who started a good work in us together, as one body, as one family, Christ will bring that to completion. Together, we are being transformed. And that may seem like a small distinction to make as to whether Paul's talking about the individual or the corporate, but it's, it's really not. Because when we think about it at the individual level, then it completely, it, it speaks nothing about the necessity of the church and how Christ accomplishes his work. It speaks nothing about the need for the body of Christ together. And so someone can often say, and we hear this all the time in our culture where everybody has a church experience, what do we always point to? We point to that altar call in way back when. And we say, well, I can tell you about my conversion. I can tell you whenever I believed. I can tell you when I accepted Christ and I know that, hey, he's going to finish his work and people go on. And they're not involved in the life of Christ. They're not involved in the body. But they take confidence in the wrong thing because it falls far short of what Paul is saying. You know, consider somebody like, uh, like Josh Harris. You haven't heard of Josh Harris. He's a renowned Christian leader, big in the evangelical world. He wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye back in the early 2000s. A prominent leader in the evangelical church who 10 years ago could have told you about the certainty of his conversion. He was a big leader in the church, and just this week, he said that he's divorcing his wife, and he no longer believes in the gospel. He says, I'm not a Christian. So, what Paul is trying to get is to a deeper reality of Christ's work than just something that happened in the past. Because if we say that, oh, I was converted and I'm just kind of relying on that, but I'm not really involved in the life of the church in the actual arena in which Christ's power and his transforming work takes place, it actually calls to question whether that conversion happened in the first place. Because I'm not going to be called into the body that Christ saves me into and say, yes, I was saved by Jesus and then hate the very thing that is his body hate the very thing that he works in and through and say, it's not worth my time. I will be transformed by other things. And this is why Paul is not saying, hey, demon-possessed girl, 
Remember your miraculous conversion. He's not saying, hey, Philippian jailer, remember the amazing things that happened the night of your conversion. See, God is at work. That's not what he's saying because that's not the basis for his confidence. The basis for Paul's confidence about Christ being at work in them comes from their participation in the mission of God together. He says his confidence comes from seeing how they were saved so that they can participate in the saving work of Christ in the life of others. So Paul is saying, Philippians, how do I know that Christ is at work in you? It's because you together are doing Christ's work. So what's the invitation here for us? How should that change who we are? How should that challenge us? Well, the invitation of this is to see the transcendent reality about our life together. That we are not a collection of individuals with our own little personal salvation stories. We are a body. We are one. We are a family that is united and unified by Christ himself. It's Christ between the Philippian church and it's Christ between us who is working in them for his purposes. And it's Christ who is mediating between us for his purposes. And how often do we forget that transcendent reality? Forget that fact that that transcendent reality about our life together, that Christ is the glue that unites us so that we might accomplish his divine purpose. And honestly, when we forget that, we lose a lot. Because then what is the difference between us and the Chamber of Commerce? What's between us and the Rotary Club when we lose that transcendent understanding that Christ himself is the very glue that holds this body together and compels us to minister, compels us into his purposes? Because to forget that is essentially to brush Jesus aside. And then we start to place other things between us instead. So we start complaining about things, about things that we wish were different and how we know what's best, and then we align ourselves with those that agree with us. And we start judging and focusing on the failures of others. We become rivalrous. We harbor grudges towards those who've hurt us. We stop being able to handle simple disagreements. We form cliques and exclude others based on criteria that's important to us. But in the end, that only describes a people that really have nothing to offer the world because they've forgotten who they are. And Paul would have us see that it's not just us as individuals. It's not just me and God with Jesus in between. It's also us, me and you, together with Jesus mediating in between us. It's you all together with Jesus mediating our life and shaping our life together. And remembering that does change how we approach and interact and relate to each other. Because now I don't have to change you. I don't have to fix you. I don't have to be frustrated with where you're at because I know that you are in process and that's okay. Now between us, I can extend grace and kindness. When we recognize that Jesus is at work among us, we realize that each person has value. Why? Because Christ called them no less than he called me. And together he's called us for his divine purpose. And we start to recognize that Jesus might use his work in me to accomplish his work in another. And we don't always know how that works, but when we see it and when it happens, it's beautiful. And when, when it does happen, it's something that we want more of. I saw it recently at the beginning of July. We had our first India team meeting for our 2019 team. 
We have five meetings, and my favorite one, my favorite meetings are the first meeting and the last. And I love the first meeting because it, every, every team, we take the opportunity after dinner, we'll sit down, and the first thing we do is I ask, why are you going to India? When was that moment you knew that you were supposed to go? And it gives an opportunity for everybody to share and to see how it is that Christ brought this group together to form a little family inside of a bigger family for his purpose. And with the first two guys to share, I wasn't ready for. They had such purpose and why they wanted to go. The first guy got up and said, I knew exactly when I wanted to go. He said it was last year whenever Jennifer Carlson got up. She started to share her interaction with the kids and what happened in her while she was there. I don't know what it was, but I wanted to go. And that's when I knew. Then the next guy that shared started telling when his moment was, and he got choked up because it was still so real to him. And it was two years had passed since he knew he was supposed to go. And he remembered when it was. He said, I read Missy Camp's update when she was in India. Completely filled with purpose and boldness and passion, calling on this church to give sacrificially. He said, I read that and I was floored. I wanted that. I wanted that passion and that boldness. I saw something I didn't have. Jesus is at work among us. And what an incredible place that we can become when we hold that close. To be a church that sees every conversation, every moment, every smile, every hello as significant. Because Christ himself is working among us and there are always opportunities for him to work. To be surprised by what he does. To be a people that know that the work that Jesus is doing in me can be used to start a new work in another person. And that's why Paul in verse 9 says how he yearns for the Philippian church to abound in love more and more. Why? So that they might come to a full knowledge and wisdom and discernment of what is excellent and be filled with the righteousness of Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying if Christ's work among you is like a fire, then your love for one another is the gasoline. The importance of love in how you approach one another, the outdoing one another and showing honor, the considering one another more important than yourselves, the loving one another as yourself, serving, sacrificing for each other, that is how Christ's work explodes into something more in the life of any people. And Paul will tell us in the rest of the book of Philippians what that love looks like. How it's an emptying of oneself. It's an emptying of oneself and sacrificing and serving another because it's the example of Jesus. It's pouring ourselves out one for another because it's the way that he showed us. And that is Paul's desire for the Philippian church because that is how they will become what Christ ultimately intended for them to be to be a people that truly know what is excellent and to be filled with the righteousness of God. But when we lose sight of Christ and that transcendent reality among us, and inevitably we will lose our love. And when we lose our love, we will lose our willingness to sacrifice for one another. And when we lose that, then we've lost it all because we've lost our identity altogether. Back in 2012 or 13, somewhere in there, there was two atheists in Great Britain. 
and they started what's called the Sunday Assembly. And basically their goal was to start a church, but to remove the idea of God. Essentially, let's remove God, let's remove the scriptures and all of those ideas, and let's form a church that's based on social progress and showing that you don't need any of those things to see people's lives change and for people to come together with common purpose and change the world. And so their gatherings would look very similar, but they would come in and they would sing songs. They'd sing, Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. They'd sing, Don't Stop Believing" by Journey. All sorts of those anthemic songs that everybody wants to sing to the rafters. And then they'd have somebody come in, they'd have a sociologist, a scientist, psychologist, an artist come in talking about how you can make the world a better place. And so, this blew up. Really, over the course of a couple of years, it spread all across uh, Great Britain and in Europe and even into the United States to where within a few years, over 5,000 Sunday assemblies had started based on the idea that you don't need God, you don't need the scriptures, you don't need any of those things, that people can come together and change the world for the common good. And now they're going back and trying to figure out what happened. Because now, more than half of them have already closed their doors and they're actually shutting down just as quickly as they started. And they're ending rapidly. And they're trying to figure out what happened. People were so excited about it at first and now there's nothing left. And they recently did an article about it where they discussed this question. And you had one lady who started one in Brooklyn, or in New York City. She was a part of the core group that found the Sunday Assembly there. And she said that over time, she realized how hard it was to get people to show up on Sunday mornings. And I'm like, amen. <laughs> and she goes, over time, we realized that uh, people found other stuff to do. And over time, we just realized that people just disagreed on like everything. And they just started arguing about what they thought was best. And then once that happened, people just stopped coming. And then we got tired of setting up chairs and all the work that goes into a weekly gathering, and it just fell apart. And they asked a, a, an expert in this field about what he thought happened. And he's an expert that looks at groups of people, and he considers, what is it that makes a group really last? What gives it its staying power? Whether that group is a secular group, a church group, what is it that makes people stick together through thick and thin? And he said, it's simple. It's two things. It's transcendence and it's sacrifice. He said, it's transcendence because you have to have an idea that is bigger than all of you put together if you want to have a chance of staying together. And then you need sacrifice. And he said, to the degree that any group calls their members to sacrifice is the degree that they will stay together. The more you ask, he said, the more you will find that people will give. And he said, that's what happened to the Sunday assembly. They had no transcendence. They had nothing to unite around. There was nothing that gave life meaning other than some idea of progress that nobody could agree on what it was. And then since they didn't have the transcendence, they lost their sacrifice. Because I don't agree with you, you don't agree with me, why am I going to give anything to you? I'm just going to go find other people that agree with me, and they fell apart. No transcendence, no sacrifice. And when I read through that, I realized, you know, on the one hand, we want to point our finger and say, yep, that's what Christianity's right. But not so fast. Because don't we often do the same thing? 
We try to engage church in a way that removes transcendence and sacrifice. We try to move towards the church in a way that removes the transcendent reality of Christ's presence, calling us to sacrifice and serve one another, shaping how we relate to one another, and instead we talk about how we want the church to be made in our image. Or we remove the necessity of sacrifice and service and we say, somebody else will do it. Or I don't have the time right now. Or maybe I'll serve whenever it's an easier point in life to do so. Or now isn't a good time. We so easily can do the same thing. But Paul tells us the better way. As he starts this letter, he tells us that we have the chance to become something altogether different. A people that are truly called out of this world, a people of grace, a people of peace, when we recognize who we are and what we're called to and recognize that Christ is at work among us. And that transcendent reality and that call to sacrifice are not burdens. It's actually the way that we come to know what is truly excellent. And it's how we become filled with the fruit of righteousness, which is really just another way of saying that we will put on display the very life and power of God, all to the glory and praise of his name. Rockwall Press, don't we know who we are? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning, coming to your table, recognizing that you are the one that was transcendent above all things, yet you, you came near to us. You poured yourself out as the drink offering so that we, we might have peace with God, so that we might be given a new identity, so that we could drink deeply of your grace, your mercy towards us that knows no end. We thank you for your sacrifice for us, and we thank you that you give us this meal so that we might have a constant perpetual reminder not just of what you've given to us, but, but also what we are called to give. And at first, that might rub us the wrong way. But when we look more deeply at your call to sacrifice, it's sharing in the very life of God. And that brings joy. That brings peace. That brings satisfaction and purpose. We ask that you would make us a church of that kind of purpose. Allow us to be a church that is committed to your mission that recognizes the beauty of us together serving in your purposes and plans and knowing that there is fruit that must be born in us. There is righteousness that we long to experience and we want to know truly what is excellent so that we might know the joy that comes from knowing you. We ask that you'd unify us at your table this morning and strengthen us for the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us. We ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody said... Amen.